0: Well, you can turn to Romans 13. I worked a lot on this message this week, like I always do, but I have to say that this message worked more on me, and that's a good thing, right? I was thinking of that last song, too. turn that down just a little bit how many of you have ever had anybody come up to you and say how are you doing how often do people do that so you know what you can say to them it is well with my soul and that presents a perfect opportunity to tell them why it is well with your soul so seize those moments Join with me in prayer. Father, thank you for your work of grace in our heart again, and for your word, the word of truth, the word of life, the word that endures forever. And Lord, we thank you for the word made flesh who dwelt among us, the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I pray that even in this season when many people are reminded about the birth of Christ, that it it will be more than just... A customary time of the year where they hear these familiar songs, but that they would really think upon the Lord Jesus Christ, why He came into this world, and that Lord, even the message that 's contained in the the Christmas songs that they hear would strike a chord in their heart. Father, I thank you for everyone that you brought here today. I pray God for those who could not be here that you will strengthen and. Encourage them where they are. And Lord, help us to, to ever look unto you as the author and the finisher of our faith, and that we would be found faithful. And that, Lord, we would just continue to love you with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and strength as you give it to us. Bless now, I pray, the hearing of this word. May the Spirit of God apply the truths to our hearts, as only he can. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 11, Romans 13. And knowing that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let's put, let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. I concluded last week with the command to to persevere in love because love the bible says is the perfect bond or the bond of perfectness and it fulfills all the commands of the law if we love god then we will put nothing or no one in place of god in our lives and neither will we do harm to our neighbor we will love our neighbor as ourselves colossians 127 says christ in us the hope of glory. And if you don't have Christ in you, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, you have no hope of glory. This final paragraph in Romans 13, which we read is an exhortation, coupled with commands, which are to be kept in view of the return of Christ and the end of the present age. That is our hope, and that should motivate us to live for Christ each and every day. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Hallelujah! right? Not worthy. In verse 11 there, it says, and that, that's the conjunction chi, and, very familiar New Testament word, followed by the demonstrative pronoun tuta, meaning that. And the King James correctly translates this, and do this. So, and that or and do this, the verb implied, knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. So nobody can fall asleep on this message. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. title of the message is Time to Wake Up. Time to Wake Up. So let me tell you this morning that my belief, the belief of this church, is that there are no prophetic events to be fulfilled before Christ returns for his church. Some teach that a great apostasy must occur first. They point to 2 Thessalonians 2. I don't believe that that is the case. Paul had previously instructed the Thessalonians, and you can turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verses 4 through 18, that the rapture of the church would occur and they would be comforted by that truth. So I put down on your notes, the Bible teaches that the return of Christ for the church is imminent. It could happen at any time. I love the verses and I know you do too. In Philippians 3 that says, verse 24, Our citizenship is where? Is in heaven. From which we also eagerly, Eagerly wait, hope you are, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So Paul writes in First Thessalonians chapter 4, if you're there, verse 13, I, I would not have you to be ignorant. And he says similar things to that on other occasions. We are not to be ignorant or unaware of biblical truth, nor the times in which we live. I would not have you to be ignorant, brother, and in this particular case, concerning them which are asleep. It's a metaphor for those who have died. That you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. Think of the world. I don't know how many funerals you've been to, gravesite services, memorial services, celebration of life services. How many people sorrow at the death of a loved one? And there is sorrow that attends it. But we as Christians, when a believer dies, we, we sorrow not as others who what? Who have no hope. So Paul explains the reason why. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and I hope you do, So we could translate this, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, meaning he conquered death, even so them also which have died, which sleep in Jesus. That means believing in him, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, That we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died. Why? Because their bodies need to be resurrected. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. (laughs) That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Some people say, well, what what will it be like? I don't know exactly what that shout the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God is going to be like. But I know you'll, you'll know it when you hear it. That's what I know. And the dead in Christ will rise first to receive their resurrected bodies. Then we who are alive, if the Lord were to return and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Is that the atmosphere? Clouds could be Disciples saw Jesus go up into the clouds, and Jesus said, "The angel said He's going to come back the same way." But I think the clouds filled with the Shekinah glory of God, perhaps. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. What a meeting! What a moment in the air! And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now notice verse eighteen: Wherefore, comfort one another. With these words. The word caught up there is arpazo in the Greek, and it means to seize or take away. People call this the rapture of the church from the Latin rapio, which means to be caught up. It's interesting, if you read the story of Philip the evangelist, it says that he was caught up near Gaza. He was taken up, and God transported him to Caesarea. So it's no problem for God to do this. Enoch was what? He was not. He just disappeared. God took him up. John six fourteen says, Then those men who had seen the miracle that Jesus did said, This is of a truth the prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come him, come, and this is the same word here, and take him by force. So harpazo means to, to take by force. It's all from one side. The believer who is taken is passive. It's God doing this. God taking them up. So they wanted to take him by force to make him king, and he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Let me give you just three, three simple results of the rapture. We can come up with more. Number one, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Permanent fellowship with the Lord. Can you think of anything better than that? And I could quit right here. Permanent fellowship with the Lord. The completion of our salvation. Remember last week I said you're not fully saved. You've been saved from your sins. You're being saved and sanctified. But you will be glorified. And that's the completion of your salvation. So one, the permanent fellowship with the Lord. Two, the completion of our salvation. And three, the unification of the church. All believers within the body of Christ. Now go to 1st Thessalonians 5 just just move forward a little bit more 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 and notice what it says but concerning or but of the times greek word there is chronos which we get our word chronological from and seasons, of the times and the seasons, that's the familiar word kairos. Brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. So they had received prior instruction. The Greek word for times denotes kairos, denotes stre- or, uh, times denotes stretches of time. Seasons, particular times. Elikot says, this is a Hebraism in which the second word is more explicit. The times rather than the seasons. We would put it this way. We would speak of the day and the hour. The hour being the season. The day being the time. And then he goes on to say this. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Suddenly and unexpectedly it's going to happen. For when they unbelievers will say peace and safety, very possibly referring to the peace treaty that the Antichrist makes with Israel. Can't be dogmatic about it. But nevertheless, they're going to be lulled into a sense of peace and safety then sudden destruction will come upon them as a travail upon a woman with child and they will not escape. These are the unbelievers. This is referring to the wrath of the tribulation, the great tribulation and the final judgment at the end of it. But notice what he says in verse 4, the contrast. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day of coming judgment would overtake you as a thief. You are children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. There's our words again. Wake up, right? Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. I believe in context, referring to this judgment that will take place on the day of the Lord. But to obtain salvation, salvation is not always speaking of salvation from sins. It's speaking of deliverance. We're going to be delivered from that by our Lord Jesus Christ. The, actually, if you look in First Thessalonians Chapter 1 and verse 10, it says that we are to wait. It talks about the wrath that's coming, but then it talks about we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, No, what does it say? Who delivers us from the wrath. And actually with the definite article, the coming one, the coming one. Well, which one is coming? the wrath that's going to take place on the day of the Lord. And actually, the word there is ruamai, deliver. And it's speaking about a forcible deliverance or a forcible rescue. Someone just comes and takes you by force. I I was thinking of, you know, have you ever seen lifeguards rescue somebody out on the ocean there? You know, they they come up and and they just, this person is struggling and can't can't make it by themselves. And oftentimes, they'll just come behind them and, you know, Give, give the bully in front of them to hold on to but the, the person has no choice they're being rescued they're being taken by force the day of the Lord in the Old Testament sometimes referred to an event that was near at hand like a coming judgment on, on, uh, on Babylon because of their, what they did with the Jewish people and taking them into captivity but it can also refer to a, a more dis- distant event So it's a period of time in that sense in which God is going to deal with wicked men directly and and dramatically in a terrorizing judgment. The world has never never contemplated such a thing. Isaiah 13.9 said, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Now he's looking out into the distance. "'Cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to, day the land, "'to lay the land desolate, "'and he will destroy the sinners thereof out of it.'" It could have been a near destruction, but also has implications for a distant time. Zephaniah one fourteen says, "'The great day of the Lord is near. "'It is near and hastens greatly. "'Even the voice of the day of the Lord, "'the mighty man will cry bitterly. "'That day is a day of wrath.'" a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So when you think about this terminology, the day of the Lord, think of it in terms of a regular day. A regular day has a nighttime, a dark time, and a light time. And there there are two phases to the day of the Lord. There is a dark phase, to the day of the Lord, and there is a light phase to the day of the Lord. One is judgment, one is blessing. Walford says the day of the Lord is a time of deliverance and blessing for Israel. It will include that. The millennium, the whole kingdom, reign of Christ on earth, which will be part of, in which Christ personally directs the government of the world. Well, that's the light phase. But sometimes it switches because in the end, the whole world's gonna be on the day, day of the Lord burnt up, Peter tells us. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.1 now. Now we beseech we you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. That's the rapture. That's, the, that's being seized or caught up. That you, you be not so soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter from us. So somebody was circulating a false letter apparently, telling them that the day of Christ is at hand. Early manuscripts read Day of the Lord. So what happened here was these false teachers had been leading the Thessalonians to believe that they were in the tribulation period. The day of the Lord had come. And they were troubled about Christ because they had heard, as we read before, that he would... He, I wouldn't read before, but it is in, in chapter 1, verse 7 and 9 of this book, that Christ would return and he would take vengeance upon the ungodly unbelievers who would suffer eternal exclusion from the presence of the Lord. So they... they they were fearing this thing, this judgment coming. They were not being comforted by the teaching that we, we read in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Comfort yourselves with this thought that we will be caught up, we will be taken away, that God will deliver us from the wrath to come. So it goes on in 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no men deceive you by any means, for that day will not come except there are falling away a departure first. That's the Greek word apostasia. Sometimes, actually, oftentimes, it is translated departure. But as we saw before, the departure of the, in the rapture is a, taken by force. All right? So nobody forces somebody to become an apostate. So this isn't referring to that kind of a departure. It's a departure from the faith. As Timothy says in the latter days, many will what? Depart from the faith. I think it's chapter 4. You know, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of de- demons. So the apostasy has to take place. And then the man of sin is going to be revealed. The son of perdition. means judgment. The one is going to be judged. Who will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or worship. So that he as God. Sits in the temple. Showing himself to be God. Now my purpose wasn't to go into details about this. But, but here's, here's what we know. The thief is going to come in the night, right? Like a thief in the night. But, but believers are declared not to belong to the night or the darkness. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. So the implication is that believers are in a different time reference. Namely, they belong to the day that precedes the darkness. First Thessalonians 5a. If the Thessalonians are of the day, they are not to be asleep. They are not to be asleep, but they are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as their helmet. They are to be watching and waiting for the Lord Jesus, the hope of salvation. Watching and waiting, and more than that, we'll see. Because Paul concludes in verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath. That kind of a judgment. But to receive deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's deliverance from the Lord's wrath on the day of the Lord. Now, although the events of the day of the Lord may not begin immediately after the rapture, following the symbolism of, of a day beginning at midnight. Day really begins at midnight, right? What's the darkest part of the night? No. I've believed that. It isn't. It isn't scientifically true. It isn't biblically true. The darkest part of the night is right after midnight. Now, there's some variance there, but typically, that's what I've been reading, a number of different good, reliable sources. It's not just before dawn, although sometimes, you know, when you're going through a trial, right? I know many of you have been up like myself all night, and you just can't wait to the first light of the day, right? You, you, just, you just want the night to pass, to be over. And we'll talk more about that in a little, in a, in a moment. So even though the day of the Lord may not begin immediately after the rapture, following the symbolism of a day beginning at midnight could easily be understood to begin with the rapture itself. The day of Christ is the rapture of the church, immediately followed by the beginnings of the day of the Lord, this time of judgment that will be coming upon the earth. In any event, I believe the rapture is an imminent event. That means it can happen in any moment. And that's why it is the blessed hope of the church. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us, notice, that as we think about the return of the Lord, whatever your view may be, it has real implications for our life, right? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Coming again, coming again, song goes, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. Coming again, coming again. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be. Jesus is coming again. I hope you think about that often. So go back to Romans 13 now. Romans chapter 13, Paul says that they had knowing the time, knowing the time, verse 11, and this knowing the time. So they had awareness through Paul's teaching, no doubt of the times in which they lived, and that it was the night season prophetically. But that night would change today. We live in the church age which precedes the return of Christ for his bride. We live in the night season. That's going to be followed by a seven-year period of tribulation on earth. No one knows the exact moment of the Lord's return, but we should not be ignorant of the fact that the church age, this, this moment in, or this season in history, will end. And it will end Suddenly. And it will end dramatically. So what are Christians to do? They're to be wide awake. This is what Paul says. Knowing the time, now it is the high time to wake out of sleep. For our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We're to be watching, right, waiting, and working for the Lord's return. Galatians 6.10 has the word kairos, time in it. And look how it's used. As we therefore have opportunity. So now is the time that we have opportunity. As we therefore have time. Let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. That describes a working faith because there is a night coming, there is a time coming in which no man can work. So you're to make the most of every opportunity, every time you have, for Jesus' sake. Ephesians 5.11 Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done in secret. But all things are reproved and made manifested by the light. For, For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he says, awakest thou that sleepest and arise from the dead out of your sleep and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And what does he say? Redeeming the time because the days are evil. That's a stewardship concept. Meaning that every moment of time is to be used for God's glory. Redeeming the time. Caution 3.17 says, Whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Students, young people, you can do your homework to the glory of God. You can do dishes to the glory of God. You can prepare dinner to the glory of God. You can do your job and your workplace to the glory of God. You can share the gospel to the glory of God. You can glorify God in your times of blessing. You can glorify God in your times of suffering. You can glorify God in life. You can glorify God in death. Every single day presents opportunities for us to redeem the time for the glory of God. And all the more, all the more so since we know prophetically what is coming And we know in and of our own selves what is coming. If the Lord should delay his coming. We are not getting any younger. No one in this room is getting any younger. And the coming of Christ isn't getting further away. It's drawing nearer and nearer every day. Christians must not be sleeping. Sleep is a metaphor for spiritual apathy. Are you spiritually apathetic? Sleeping. Proverbs 6, 9. How long wilt thou, O sluggard, sleep? When will you arise out of your sleep? That refers to the sluggard getting out of bed and getting something done, right? But there's a spiritual Apathy. J.C. Ryle said, now is the school time, then the eternal holiday. Now is the tossing on the waves of a troublesome world, then the quiet harbor. Now is the scattering, then is the gathering. Now is the time of sowing, then is the harvest period. Now is the working season, then the wages, the reward. Now is the cross, then the crown. We've taken up our cross and we're following Jesus. So we shouldn't expect the world to treat us kindly because it did not treat him kindly. Paul's intention here in these portions of the scripture, I I digressed a little, but his intention here is not to lay out a precise prophetic timeline, but to say that the imminent return of Christ should motivate the Christian to a righteous and spiritually productive life. So let me ask you this. What time is it? It's later than you think. It's later than you think. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. It's later than you think. A grandfather went to see his little granddaughter who was having trouble in her room falling back to sleep. It was midnight. And as he was talking with her, the chime clock in the nearby room which was malfunctioning started to chime 12 times 13 14 15 and the little girl said grandfather it's later than it's ever been <laughs> that's true brothers and sisters it's later than it's ever been at every passing moment, someone has said, every day we pitch our tents, a day's march nearer home. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? I mean, just think, you go, you've gone camping, backpacking. I've gone backpacking, you know, for a week at a time. And, you know, you get up, you take your tent down, and then you, you move it forward. You set it up again, and then the same thing the next day. And every day you do that, you're, you're pitching your tent a little further toward your destination. Psalm ninety twelve teaches to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. But you go back to eleven b. There, now is our salvation nearer than when we believe? That's a twofold salvation that's mentioned there. The first is eschatological. Now is our salvation, our end time deliverance and glorification, is nearer than when we first believed, were born again, and came to Christ. If you were saved 40 years ago, you are 14,609.7 days closer to the Lord's return than when you came to him for salvation. You're drawing closer and closer to seeing Jesus. Maybe the end of your natural life, but he's coming again. Don't be a skeptic because we're over 2,000 years since he spoke the words recorded in John Chapter 14, beautiful words. And and again, when you think Paul says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Remember, you know, 1 Thessalonians 4. Wherefore comfort one another. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Be comforted. Be comforted. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Mansions. (laughs) If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare and has a place for you, but I like to think of it Tom, I'm preparing a place for you. I'm preparing one for you. I'm preparing a dwelling place for you. That's what Jesus said. For you, for you, for you. For all of you who know Christ. What an amazing place it's going to be. Right? Better than any shack you have on this earth. Right? And if I go and prepare that place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you unto myself. That where I am, you may be also. Permanent fellowship with the Lord. The completion of our salvation, our glorification, and the unification of all believers. What a blessed thought. So he moves on. Verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Far spent. Those words means it's progressing toward the new day. It's fast advancing. The night is fast advancing. The night is a metaphor for the time of evil in which we live and have been living since the fall of man Under the prince of darkness, Satan, Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of what? The darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in what? The evil day the night season, the day of darkness, and having done all to stand. Stand, right? So in this evil day, we learn that darkness literally engulfs us. It surrounds us. Every day, if you pay any attention to the news, and I hope you don't pay too much attention, but every day you hear of horrific acts of evil. Unthinkable things that people are doing to, to other people. Only the light of the world can extinguish the darkness. Only the light of Christ. No politician. Right? No utopian, idealistic type of a you know, movement that's going to come, New Age or whatever they want to call it, that's going to usher. Only Jesus who is the light of the world, can change this present darkness. So he goes on to say, are you a woke Christian? <laughs> you know what that word means. I'm not talking about that kind of woke. But the woke Christian must cast off the clothes of the old man. That's the deeds of the old nature. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light cast off was a term that spoke of in the original of a deliberate forceful purposeful expulsion you identify it and you cast it off i'm not going to have anything to do with that colossians 3 8 put off all of these cast off all of these things Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put on the old man with his deeds. So we're to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is an interesting word. The word armor there is the word hoplon, H-O-P-L-A-N. And it referred to arms that was used in warfare, complete armament. We are not taking it easy, waiting for the Lord. We are to be battle ready, and God calls many of His soldiers to the front line of the battle. Hoplon, armor. Hoplite was the name. Hoplite was the name given in ancient Greece to citizen soldiers who who were tasked with the challenge of protecting their their borders. With the exception of Sparta, I read, which had a permanent professional army, ancient Greek civilizations called up soldiers when absolutely necessary. They were called the Greek hoplites. And they were armed with a variety of weapons and armor. They were incredibly strong military force. They were innovators of the battlefield formation known as the phalanx where they would march side to side with their shields and their spears and then regiments behind them, lines behind them, and so forth. The phalanx remains one of the most effective tactics ever conceived and was responsible for the least likely victory ever accomplished at the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. Brothers and sisters, we're to be hoplite soldiers, hoplite warriors. Put on the whole armor of God. Paul calls that armor the armor of light. The armor of light. The armor that we have because of the light of the gospel which has shone upon us and because of the Holy Spirit whom God has given to indwell us. We have everything we need, we lack nothing. He gave us everything necessary for a life of faith and godliness, the Bible says. So then he gives the concluding admonition, verse 13. Let us walk properly. Honestly. You know, you ever see Christians, they profess to be Christians, and they're drinking, they're doing whatever else it is. And you know, you want to just say, that, that, sir, "That's Sir, you're not walking properly if you claim to be a believer. That's, on, that's not how Christians should walk. Let us walk properly or honestly as in the day, because we're of the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So we're to walk honestly or properly. We're to forsake sins that lack self-control. What, riotness, drunkenness, chambering, wantonness, strife. The net says, not in carousing, what that's wild parties, drunkenness, intoxication. Not in sexual immorality or promiscuity or sensuality. You know, one of the words that he uses there is wantonness. Sensuality, as some translate it. I read that this was the ugliest word in the Greek language. It indicates an absence of restraint, shamelessness. I don't care what others think kind of an attitude. Unbridled lust. Sensual dress and behavior. The parading of perversion. Does that sound familiar? In our day and age. Gay parades, drag shows, Mardi Gras. Wantonness. People don't care what you think. Then he says, not in discord or strife, which means persistent bickering. Or jealousy, which means contentious rivalry. We're not to do any of those things. Cast off all of that stuff and all the other verses that talk about casting off. And, and then the best action to take, put on the Lord Jesus. Now I want you to know that when you were saved, you were clothed with Christ's righteousness. That's an imputed righteousness. Righteousness. But put on the Lord Jesus means we're to show forth the fruit of sanctification in putting Jesus on display in our life. Put on Christ. To be clothed with Christ conveys the thought that when others look at us or hear us, our words, our actions, and our deeds, they see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now, they may not know what they're saying, so you have to tell them why. Why you are like you are. Why you do the things you do. Why you don't do the things that other people do. And then he says make no provision for the flesh. Don't give the flesh an opportunity to seize control and exert itself because it will. Right. It absolutely will. Somebody says something to you and your first thought is to fire back. That's the human defense system. That's our emotional front line. You give it to me, I'm going to give it right back to you. That's the flesh. It wants to exert itself. Tells you, go ahead, go ahead. You have to make no provision for the flesh. A good translation in this in the Greek would be this. And for the flesh, take no forethought for desires. Don't give it a a thought. Don't give it a first thought, let alone a second thought. Because if you give it a first thought, you're liable to give it a second thought. And then you're just liable to do it. Right? The English word provision is from the Latin word providere, which means literally to see ahead. To see ahead. And if we would only see ahead and see the consequences of letting the flesh exert itself, maybe we wouldn't do it. So provision then refers to measures taken beforehand, either for security, defense, or attack, or the supply of wants. Listen, the flesh cannot control you on its own. It needs your cooperation. Nobody can make you do it. The flesh can't make you do it. It needs your cooperation. Make no provision for the flesh. Anybody ever see the old hee-haw show? What a crazy show. How many of you remember that? Come on, put your hands up. You'll, you've, okay, a good number of people have saw that at least one time in their life. I don't know what it was. Comedy, music, throwing all that stuff in. But there was a guy on there named Doc Campbell. Remember him? He was confronted by a patient who came to him and and said he broke his arm in two places. And the doc replied, well then stay out of those places. (laughs) Best medical advice I ever heard. (laughs) Stay out of those places. Make no provision for the flesh. That's what he was saying. Don't put yourself on a path where you know you will be tempted. Don't put yourself in that situation because you're not as strong as you think on your own.